what if I compile all of this stuff and put it together and turn it, transform the medium into something more permanent? And so I just tweeted, I think my first crack at the title was like, what if I wrote the book of knowledge and compiled a bunch of Naval's stuff and shared it? And he retweeted that. And I woke up to find that like 5,000 people were like, oh, hell yeah, we want that project. I was like, oh, damn, okay. And he was like, oh, if you're going to do it, I'm happy to support. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I talk with Eric Jorgensen. He's the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. He talks about how one late night tweet led to him being essentially the co-author of this book with someone who's one of the most famous people in Silicon Valley. He talks about how he actually was able to pull off writing this book, the doors it has opened, and some of the best takeaways from working with essentially the Buddha of Silicon Valley. Then we talk about something that he writes a lot about on his blog, Leverage. He breaks down how any business owner, any person can use four types of leverage from tools, product, people, and capital and use those things to grow their business or to grow their own career. And then finally, at the end, I have him break down some of his own half-baked startup ideas related to real estate, related to the new age media company for sports, and even ideas around crypto. I really hope you enjoy this episode and would love to know what you think. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. All right, Eric, so pumped to have you here. Before we dive in, we just introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah, my name is Eric Jorgensen. I've been kind of always in the like entrepreneur startup world as a kid, like selling candy out of my locker and stuff. And then spent the last 10 years at one tech company bouncing around between San Francisco and New York and Kansas City. And now I'm kind of between chapters and finally kind of have some leash to go explore a bunch of random ideas I've had over the last 10 years and spend more time on Twitter, which is just what I needed. That's a fun place to be in where like the world is yours, but then it's a little paralyzing as you try and figure out what to do next. So yes, the Twitter is a natural default. But you talk about a topic, leverage, that I think people, they understand at a high level, but they don't truly understand the impact it can have. And that's how I've really found out about you is you're kind of the leverage guy. So we're going to get into that. But first, I got to hit on the Naval stuff. For people that don't know who Naval is, how would you describe him to somebody? Yeah, he's a really interesting and kind of multifaceted guy. So he is very widely followed in Silicon Valley and the startup world. So if you're in the startup, like San Francisco tech ecosystem, like you definitely know who Naval is. He's probably best known as the co-founder of AngelList. So if you found a job on AngelList, Talent or Invested or whatever, tons of companies are fundraising through that. They own Product Hunt now. So it's this kind of whole family of companies that is like the platform that startups operate on now pretty close to worldwide. He's also like an investor in a ton. I mean, Uber, Twitter, Yammer. He was early into cryptocurrencies. And so he's done a lot of stuff with, I think his fund is Metastable there, the fund that he invested in. And Interestingly, like over the last few years, he's kind of most widely become known just as his Twitter account, some of the podcasts that he does under his own name, just under Naval. And it's really interesting because it's a total departure from like very tactical tech and investing stuff. And it's much more his journey, his kind of philosophical journey of self-education towards happiness. The story that he tells is working really hard for his whole life to achieve kind of these 
things that we are, most of us are trying to achieve either material or social successes and achieving them and finding that none of them moved him incrementally towards happiness. And he had this epiphany that's like, if you're so smart, like, why aren't you happy? It's not a trait that you're born with. It's something that you can build and learn. And so the last few years, a lot of what he has shared has been focused on that. But he's also kind of a self-taught scientist and shares a lot of thoughts about that. It's just a very kind of interesting, broad spectrum of exploration that he does publicly and among probably over a million people now who's followed that with interest and learned a ton from what he shares. Yeah, everything he says, I feel like I have to read it or hear it two or three times because it's so insightful and so helpful. And so he's built up this huge reputation. He works, collaborates with big time, kind of well-known people from Tim Ferriss to like the top CEOs in Silicon Valley and tech. And talk to me about how you're able to get on the radar with him because you wrote a book with Naval. How did that even come to be? Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. And I don't want to overstate because it's a very like, it's not like Naval and I knew each other or like I had any special access. Like Naval and I did not co-author a book here. What happened is <laughs> I sent out a tweet with a very half-assed like kernel of an idea for a compilation. As I've spent my whole life like reading compilations of Warren and Charlie's, uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's like letters or Peter Bevlin's collections or principles. There's like Ray Dalio collecting his own set of interests. And so it occurred to me that like Naval has created all of this value in these very ephemeral mediums like podcasting and Twitter, where these insights are just kind of lost to time pretty quickly. But what he's talking about is very evergreen and very relevant over the long haul, but the medium was not preserving them well. And so I just had this list that proposed this thing. I'm like, what if I compile all of this stuff and put it together and turn it, transform the medium into something more permanent? And so I just tweeted, I think my first crack at the title was like, what if I wrote the book of knowledge and compiled a bunch of Naval's stuff and shared it? And he retweeted that. And I woke up to find that like 5,000 people were like, oh, hell yeah, we want that project. I was like, oh, damn, okay. And he was like, oh, if you're going to do it, I'm happy to support and you know provide you. The only thing I had that wasn't public was the Twitter database. So just an export of his whole Twitter history. But yeah, I just worked from that. It's not, we didn't do a ton of back and forth. I didn't have any special access or info or shadow him. We didn't even meet in person or talk live. The whole thing was just done with material that he had already created. That's insane. It was like kernel of an idea and it got very real, very quick, it sounds like. Then you have this pressure, like, crap, I have to write a book now. I mean, how does that process? I had no idea. And I kind of figured it out as I went, bumping into a lot of walls along the way. It was very, at first I was like, oh, this is great. This will be like a three month project. And then as soon as he sort of supported it, I was like, oh, okay, now like my bar for this has gone way up. And I was like, okay, maybe now it's a six-month project, but it ended up being a three-year project. So that's there was some suffering involved in me keeping approach, thinking I was being done, and then like finding out I was still only halfway there. And I'm like, damn, this is. But the bar kept raising, and I kept. I, I just really want. I knew I was going to publish something, and I just wasn't sure I was going to be able to get it to be good enough. And so I just kept working and kept iterating, and it was finally starting to get really good feedback from peer readers, and it started to be. I started to pick it up and it was better than I remembered instead of worse than I remembered when I last put it down. And that was when I started to be like, okay, I think we're, I think we're getting there now because I knew the raw material was brilliant and, and was resonating with people. And it was just a question of whether I could put these pieces together the right way to create a really great reading experience for people who had never heard of Naval or had heard a little bit, but wanted to explore the other ideas or wanted to get the full exposure to the full set of his ideas, or at least the core kind of mainstream ones in a, in an organized kind of threaded way, instead of trying to put together, it, it's very interesting to hear the, where the best articulations of each idea are. 
because sometimes it was a podcast three years ago matched with a blog post from the last month that like those two ideas actually fit together the right way and answer the obvious next question. So it's just creating kind of one thread of ideas so that as you're reading, you go very naturally from idea to idea and complementing the right stories with the right ideas, with the right summarizing aphorism that like really helps you stick that idea in your head and make it memorable and actionable. Yeah. I mean, the book has taken off too. I think it's been number one on Amazon. It's, I mean, the reach it's had is insane. Taking a step back for anyone that's looking to do a big project like that or write a book, you talk about some of the struggles. What were the hardest parts you had to overcome? And what were the things that gave you momentum? Was it one figuring out how do I even structure this? Because looking back, the structure is amazing and it looks quite simple. I don't know if that was something that happened right away or not. And then the second part, you talked about thinking you're done and then not being done. I think that's an issue people have because you're 90% of the way there, 90% of the time, right? You know, Can you talk about balancing those things as you're trying to do this big project and you have the spotlight of Naval is looking for you to do this? That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And it was public from like the very beginning, which is a, a helpful pressure maybe, but also a pressure. Cause like after three months, I started getting DMs from people. Yo, when is this book coming out? And I'm like, I can't even tell you how far we are from this book actually. I mean, one, because I don't know, but two, because this is measured in years, not weeks. So just buckle up. This is going to be a minute. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was interesting, especially interesting because this is my first book. And so I didn't know there's paper walls that you can just run through in this maze. And there's very solid walls that like you can't just push over and you got to find a way around. And so it was really interesting to kind of gather those bruises from figuring out which are which. There was definitely the big breakthroughs I think come came from adding a constraint. So the structure was an interesting one. The first version or the first manuscript kind of completed draft was like hundreds more pages. It was very comprehensive. It was much more of a poor Charlie's Almanac approach. And it had whole sections about like futurism and predictions that Naval had made and like a whole chapter on education. And there's a lot of stuff that I was interested in and that Naval had great material on. But it wasn't when I gave this thing to, to kind of peer readers and friends who were interested, they like really gobbled up the wealth and the happiness sections. Go figure, right? Everybody wants to be rich and happy. And then they would pick one or two of these extra sections like education or, or investing or building a startup or something like that based on their interests. And when I realized that I, wa I wanted this to be like as, as generalizable as possible, like I wanted to appeal to the broadest range of people so that anybody on earth could read and take one life-changing idea out of this book, it made it easy to get to cut some of the sections on education or on investing or something like that. And I published those on the website. So those are you know still available to everybody, but it doesn't have to be in that core published kernel of a book. That, that, was, a, that was one. I mean, even realizing that this needed to be a book very specifically, right? That was even something I tried to like, I spent a little bit of time being too clever by half and like overthinking it a little bit and be like, well, how will I update it? And then how will I do this? And I was like, I need to just, uh, Trevor, my friend Trevor McKendrick actually one day just slapped me. It was like, this is a book, like focus on filling that form factor and just like back to work. And then energy kind of ebbs and flows based on how clear your next milestone is. And I think that's where your question about how it feels to be feel like you're 90% of the way there. I think we almost have to trick ourselves into thinking we're in the last 10% to like really work with energy and excitement and enthusiasm. And then you get there and you kind of get a celebration moment and then you're like, take a couple of days and you're like, okay, this isn't, this isn't done. This isn't hundred percent. Let's move the goalposts again on ourselves and go back to 90% and sprint the last 10% again. And so it's a little bit of a 
willing like suspension of disbelief as to how close you are to being done because it's hard to work with high energy and excitement when you're honest with yourself about being 22% done and you're like this is three more years of work but I got to bring it today so I think that's a little bit of a mental game that that we play yeah have some sort of light at the end of the tunnel so you're somewhat close but that's really good advice so you write this book it blows up can you talk about what did this do even for you, whether it's professionally or for opening doors or for your career, just for anyone that's thinking of doing a big project like this, I know it's hard to measure ROI on it, and it'll probably be something you measure for the next 30 years. But you know, what were some really good things that came from this for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I get to meet a lot more people who have podcasts. Um, like, I, I end up in a lot more interviews. Doesn't everybody have a podcast? Yeah. I get a lot more DMs and emails if that's something that people want. It's no, it's really been, I think there's a lot to be said for having one, at least one, but like a large project that you are known for that is like an easily identifiable accomplishment. I think any accomplishment can be a thing, but I think I have this interesting post where I'm, I'm trying to, it's an idea I'm still trying to dis dissect, but we all use credentials to as shorthand for understanding who someone else is and what they're capable of, right? And some of them are adopting credentials that exist, right? If you, someone tells me like, Hey, I'm a Navy SEAL or I'm a medical doctor or I went to Harvard Business School. I'm like, oh shit, this is a person who can accomplish a thing. But those are also bar borrowed credentials. And there are people who can build their own credential as anybody who can build a company. But it's also crazy shit, right? Like you can just decide to swim across the English Channel and that's a really hard thing to do. And if you do it or paddleboard across the Red Sea the long way or whatever, anything that you set yourself to do that you do that's then hard that can then be a shorthand like signal for people that like, hey, this is a person who can do shit. I think that's a meaningful transformation. And it's something that everybody kind of accumulates, not everybody accumulates, but everybody does in a different way and pursues in a different way. And you can build your own and you can adopt others. But I do think that there's a meaningful change of pace in life for someone who can point to a meaningful credential, whether it's graduating from something or, or building something or launching something like that. And I think this book was a much bigger one than probably the thing I had previously, which was like this blog evergreen that I put out, but there's a lot of different types of it. And it's an interesting thing. It also showed me, it gave me a really tangible feeling that if you work your ass off and produce something that's really great that you're proud of and put it in the market, like it will take on a life of its own. People will appreciate it and people will speak on its behalf. And it will, it was a real tangible proof to me that a quality product can kind of get this tailwind behind it and blow up much bigger than you could possibly expect. Yeah, I totally agree. Whether it's a, a book, software, or making a D2C product, if you make the product really good, man, it solves a lot of other problems and gets the word out there. So with the book, I love how you broke it up into the ways that you did as far as wealth and happiness. And I know there's a lot of different things that resonated with people. And in the book, you talk quite a bit about leverage. My guess is, was that something that inspired kind of this next path, or maybe it was parallel path, as far as really focusing on leverage? Did it stem from the book and from Naval? Uh, yeah, I think in a lot of ways. I mean, the book, this is another answer to your last question too. Like this book was, it, it wanted me to study these ideas for years, right? which is why I was so excited to do it. And there's this whole chapter and idea on leverage that I think is the most, it is one of the most powerful ideas in the book. It's also one of the least explored, right? There's a chapter on specific knowledge and by the time you're done reading the chapter, you feel like you understand specific knowledge pretty well, seven, eight out of 10. When you finish reading the chapter on leverage, you 
feel like you understand it maybe a three or four out of 10, but you also have, it's enough to appreciate the enormity of the idea and its potential impact, but it doesn't, it's not quite enough to like close that gap between, Hey, this is a really big idea and I understand how to apply it and all of the nuances of it and all of the ways that it breaks down. And so I think probably the biggest question I get from readers of the book is where can I go learn more about leverage? Is there another book? Is there like, what is there to keep exploring this idea and expanding it and applying it? And I didn't have a good answer for them, but it was, I was drawn to that idea too. Um, so I think the book really kind of created that label and that appetite for more information about leverage and in me and in readers. And so it's really the thing that I have started to try to explore and explain more in my own life and in my own reading. And it's also, I mean, kind of a perfect fit for where I am, which is in my life, which is I love the results that I'm getting. And I'm really I'm proud of this book. And I would love to build more like it. I'm proud of some of the investments that I've made and I want to do more like it. I'm proud of the people that I'm meeting and I want to meet more people like it. Like I'm happy with what is happening. And leverage is just a is a force multiplier, right? It's a way of doing the work that helps you increase that impact. And so if you're happy with the kind of writing that you're able to do or the people that you're able to meet or the investments that you're able to make, it's this process of like, how do I do the work that allows me to increase that impact, to increase the size of the volume of work that I can produce or the amount of investments that I can make or things like that. So that's the practice that I'm studying and the practice that I'm teaching it and preaching it and living it kind of all at the same time and doing my best to kind of keep understanding this idea and bring together people who want to keep understanding it more. And so that's kind of the motivation behind the writing and the tweeting and the, the course that I'm building and I mean, the central kind of theme of my life at the moment. I'm sold. I'm following the leverage gospel for sure. So let's go into that. So people are like, okay, leverage, that sounds interesting. I'm intrigued. You do a good job on your blog and in your course, like talking about the different types of leverage. Can you explain that to people just so they can get their head around what it means and the various applications of it? Yeah, yeah. So what we do in the course and what, what I'll try to do briefly here is start with the very basic, like the mental, the, start with the physics of it and then go to the mental model and then go to the types. Because if you start with analogy, sometimes you lose it along the way. So a lever in physics is a force multiplier, right? So you and I maybe can't lift an 800 pound car, but with a 20 foot lever, that would be trivial effort, right? That's no problem at all. And so that analogy can kind of extend towards the knowledge work that we do, right? Not just the physical work. So it would be very difficult to fill a stadium with a thousand people and give a talk to them. It is not very difficult to record a video or a podcast like we're doing right now and find a way to get that to reach a thousand people over the course of a month. And so we can generalize that a little bit into different, we, we look at that as a way to increase the return on our effort. So we can reach a thousand people with one hour of effort here, whereas filling that stadium might take hundred hours of effort. And so it's a thousand one instead of 10 to one. And that goes a lot of places, right? So the types of leverage that we have tools, product, people, and capital are the, the four classifications that I use. And I kind of choose those buckets pretty deliberately, but just to use a, an example from tools. So if I went out and tried to chop down a tree with my bare hands, I would not make it very far. If I had an ax, I would get probably infinitely more done. If I had a chainsaw, I'd get 10 times that done. If I had a tractor and another guy to help, I'd get 10 or 20 times the work done. So these tools can be leveraged for the amount of effort that we're putting in. And that's a simple way to look at it in the same way that a product in our definition is a way to kind of extract. I described it in the course as creating a very thin purpose-specific digital clone. And so it's capturing your, your experience or your knowledge or an insight 
in preserving it into a physical or digital form. So it's a product of you, not a product that you use like a tool is. But what classifies a podcast like we're recording right now, writing a book, filming something, everything from a movie to a YouTube video to a quick TikTok, maybe the most powerful version is writing something like an algorithm or a software program. And so that the low marginal cost of replication for digital versions of this make it significantly more powerful than the past version, which was maybe writing a paper, um, the kind of the analog version. But it's incredible leverage, not just instantly, where we can reach 100,000 people, whereas that would have been impossible in an analog world, but also forward through time. So the cost of recording has decreased so much that someone five years in the future could listen to this with no logistical difficulties around tapes or file formats or anything like that. People, Naval in the book talks about leverage as labor, as one of the forms of leverage. And I wanted to generalize that to people because I think there's a lot of, there's uncompensated forms of leverage and there's a lot more nuance around getting access to the skill sets of others than just, can you hire them or not? So people leverage takes a lot of forms. The, maybe the most basic version is something like a task-based, a very well-defined task-based marketplace like Mechanical Turk or Fiverr or something like that, where I go pay 20 bucks for someone to do like a very, almost a skew of a task. And whether I can't do it or whether it's just a better use of their time than mine, because I can buy back my own hour of time for 20 bucks. Then we've got something that's a little more ongoing management, maybe like Upwork or hiring a fractional personal assistant or something like that. And then maybe the most complicated form of that is hiring full-time people and hiring full-time like fully executive hiring a ceo basically to take on a whole business unit is probably the highest leverage version of people leverage that there is and it's something that andrew wilkinson of tiny is really good at and we talked to him about that in the course right so he these are the two biggest inflection points of leverage in his career were one hiring his personal assistant and two hiring his first ceo to take over his agency for him and he's got an amazing story of growing from kind of consultant to agency to essentially portfolio manager now, right? Like he, he just buys new businesses and either recruits or kind of manages the leadership of that. But it's a very interesting kind of process. And it's something that evolves over time, right? And I wanted to make it really clear that people leverage is not just labor and you can have people leverage outside of hiring people very specifically to work for you. I think hiring an agency is, is a form of people leverage. And I think there's also uncompensated forms of leverage, right? So some of the most influential people on earth aren't necessarily the ones with the most employees, but the ones with the most fans or followers or supporters, people who respect their opinion and follow their guidance. And sorry to jump in on your point about leverage and people and Andrew Wilkinson, his blog post, Lazy Leadership, where he talks about entrepreneurship is essentially delegation and seeing him truly put that into action. I don't know how big his, how tiny is. I think it's like over 30 companies. It, that content combined with yours definitely opened up my eyes to that perspective. So that's a great example. Yeah, he's he's kind of living proof that works. It's hard, right? It's, you know, I think sometimes it's very easy to make that sound trivially easy and, and either take management or delegation as a skill totally for granted. I think it is still a thing to be learned and practiced and iterated on, but it is there's a lot of leverage to unlock there. Yeah. Is people leverage the worst leverage? There is no worst leverage, right? So Naval claims that, right? He there's I can't remember the source specifically. I think it's in the book. He says people leverage is just the messiest form of leverage compared to writing code that's a lot cleaner. I try not to pass judgment on any of the forms of leverage because I think people are all different and their skills and aptitudes are different. And you know, there's people who may relish leadership and management and recruiting and, and team building. And there's certainly 
you know, the alternative to being willing to use people leverage is being willing to learn absolutely everything yourself and accepting your own kind of hours in the day as the cap on your, your ability to learn and, and produce. So I think it's important to be willing to use people leverage on some level, even if it's only to unlock other forms of leverage, right? And I think we can use, when you articulate it this way, it's easy to see why, why Combinator has such a strong preference for multiple uh, teams with multiple founders. And because it's very rare to find one person with the combination of skills and natural talents of people management and persuasion and communication and influence that it takes to be, you know, a CEO and successful fundraiser and recruiter and technical knowledge and design talent and sort of product insight that it takes to be a good, you know, product person or technical builder or recruiter and manager of technical teams. And that's just a way of saying you need different people with different skills to manage all of the different kinds of levers that are available to you. And it, it takes different talents and different experiences to do all of that well. No, that's very well said. And then the final piece is capital, which I don't know if that speaks for itself, but if there's any more color on that one. Yeah, capital is there's a little bit of asterisks around capital. So we tend to think of it as like just money in the bank, right? And that is definitely the first version. And that money can be recycled and reinvested into other forms of leverage, right? So that's an important kind of feedback loop between if you're using your tools to earn more profit, you can invest that profit in better tools or product or people to continue to in increase that. And so that kind of flow of capital is important. I think it's also kind of worth, there's a lot of hidden gems in, in capital and the way it can take different forms. We know the means of production aren't just money, but also land and raw materials and things like that. And so we did this interview with Nick Huber, which is very interesting. He started his business in college. He has a self-storage like empire now, basically. But where it started was this very kind of sweaty, scrappy thing where he had a 12-month lease and he couldn't get out of his last three months where he wasn't planning to live there. And so what he did was like sell self-storage and use this lease that he couldn't get out of, which is like this form of capital. It was like totally sunk cost as capital, right? But he's like, I have this resource that's this apartment that's empty. And I can't sublet it, so I guess I'll lease it out for storage. And he made, uh, he used his car, he used existing resources entirely to launch this business, and made like eight or ten thousand his first summer in business. And he was like, "Okay, I guess we got a business. Here we go." And so that's just kind of creative use of capital. I think that's how that classifies. And if you work to just kind of inventory your assets and the things that you have, and figure out how you can apply them to the problems that you're trying to solve or the opportunities that you're trying to tackle you may find some surprising advantages in stuff that just kind of ends up in this miscellaneous like capital bucket. And I, I also think there's this really important kind of fifth column in, in my framework that is like the, the wild card, which is that vendors and platforms are bundles of leverage. And so there's whole organizations that you can adopt that provide this massive set of services that are already combining tools, products, people, and capital in their own way to provide something for you. Like when you use Stripe as a vendor or when you go to a, a supplier and buy an already made product and you just become the customer's the manufacturer's representative of that product, essentially, like you are adopting wholesale, this whole bundle of leverage that already exists. And those bundles are getting better and better, especially in the tech world. So you can go build a lot on top of AWS really quickly because that work is already done for you and offered up as this kind of easily adopted package of services. That's really Good examples of that. So I'm sold. I'm into it. We've got tools. We've got product. We've got people. We've got capital. Now you've introduced bundles as far as leverage. Let's say you hypothetically 
have an agency, you have 12 people, maybe you live in Seattle, Washington, and you're like, okay, I want to apply this idea. How, how hypothetical is this, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, yeah, maybe it's called growth head, I don't know. But you're just, where do you get started with this? Because I'm, I'm so intrigued. It's a little overwhelming as far as no, knowing where to dip your toe in the waters first. Is it doing simple, something simple? Is it doing an assessment? Or do I just get an executive assistant? How do people do this the right way where it sticks? Yeah, so this is something that we we approach pretty carefully in the course. We try to unpack the idea really well so that it sticks and so the fundamentals are there. And then really the like core of the course begins when you create your first, we call it a leverage map. And you're looking sort of at your whole broad set of what is the leverage available to you? Right. And so what we tend to find when I interview people or when I talk to students in this course are that, that they have one or two real strong points. So of those four types, they're maybe really focused on people leverage. And so I think in the agency world, that's really common, right? Like consultants who aren't willing to use people leverage tend to stay consultants and consultants who are willing to use people leverage become agency owners, right? And maybe they're really either well attuned to that socially or excited about it, or that's just what comes naturally to them. And maybe they're also really good at finding and adopting the right tools. I also tend to find that people have one of those forms of leverage that they are totally blind to and don't eat like they, it's just invisible to them and they don't even see it. And maybe another of the forms that they know is there and they either have psychological or psychological blockers around using, or maybe just don't have some sort of, don't believe in their own aptitude with it and aren't sure where to start. And they're intimidated by maybe making like too big of a leap. So what we do when we chart out, we will chart out your mountain of leverage, as we call it. And some, an agency, this agency owner, this hypothetical agency owner, of course, <laughs> may be very, very heavy on people leverage, right? And so they may have 12 people working for them. We got that stuff really well defined and, but they're not, they haven't productized themselves in any way. And so there's still a lot of firefighting that goes on. They are locking a lot of their own experiences in their head. Their leadership is sort of getting their team to do the same thing. And they may not be reinvesting capital very like very intentionally into other people or into other products or into other tools that they can create. And so we'll chart this all out. We'll look at what they're using, what they're not using, and what's what their goals are kind of long-term. And we'll find, to address that, that second concern, we'll find a very manageable next step. And so if it's product that they are kind of blind to, to sort of prescription would be a very small approachable way to preserve their insights. And so maybe it's just a check, a one process checklist and it's, okay, what's the process that you do the most often in this agency? Is it a new client? Is it that you're pitching every new client that comes in and you need to like turn this into a landing page or record a video or teach someone else to do this? Like finding the biggest opportunities to apply these forms of leverage that are underutilized sometimes and where can we reinvest that capital and how do we increase your confidence that we're reinvesting that capital into a really high ROI place. So if, you, if you're not a confident capital allocator and you are blind to product leverage, the idea to maybe hire a video crew to record the 10 most common questions that you have to tell every client in a really high production value way and put it on your damn website may not even occur to you because you're so used to doing it yourself and you're not sure that's going to be a good use of money because holy shit, that's $3,000 and a day that I won't get back. Reframing that as like, let's look at your aspirational hourly rate. What are you worth when you are working on your highest, best use things, which is something we do in the course. We derive your aspirational hourly rate. And how can we buy back 10 hours a month 
every month for your future self forever. If we can spend $3,000 on that and that will pay off in 90 days, like that's a total no brainer. Like let's get on that. Let's make sure that one of, one of our laws of leverage is don't repeat yourself, record yourself. So if you have said something a hundred times already, let's find a way that you don't have to say it another thousand times. Sorry to write down two things you say. It said mountain of leverage. That is an amazing phrase. You need to like trademark and then the laws of leverage. Very cool. Yeah. The mountain of building a mountain of leverage is the name of the course. It's, it's like the core metaphor of the course. Yeah. Yeah. So we, the way we kind of think about this is like this mountain has four faces and each type of leverage is one of the faces of the mountain. And the work that we do as, as entrepreneurs or business owners is this work of intentionally adding levers and extending the levers that are already there. And when we do that kind of work, we are doing work that increases our ability to do future work. We're increasing the impact that we can have tomorrow, next month, next year. And when we do that consistently, we get this compounding effect. And so we think of compounding a lot in terms of capital or something like that, but we don't think of how an hour invested today gives us the ability to do 10 hours of work next month or next year. And there's some tasks that very deliberately build that leverage and increase your impact and increase your ability to have a higher output in the future. And there's some that don't. And I, I mean, especially in this, this agency world, I think it's so hard to get off that treadmill sometimes. You're just feeding the beast and trying to keep up with what's going on. And, and you either lose the time or the ability or the discipline or the kind of mindset to focus on this work that gets more work done and to do the things that only you can do. And that really, you know, the time starts to fly by when you're fighting fires all the time and, and you're not able to take a long view and invest in some of that stuff and a lower growth rate that allows you to do that kind of work and create that compounding return instead of just accepting a linear return is, is really an important shift. It's, it's painful though. It's, I, I, like, I understand why it's so hard for people though, because when you look at a compounding graph, it looks trivial for the first, I don't know, the first 10 years. And I don't think leverage takes that long, but it's definitely, it's not obvious tomorrow that you did the right thing today in every case. And sometimes it feels trivial the next week or the next month because it doesn't immediately relieve that, oh my God, my hair's on fire feeling of the top to do on my list. But it does have this totally counterintuitively massive outcome over time. And the people that you see with truly unreal superhuman outcomes now you can use this framework in the same way to dissect the decisions that they made and how they invested in leveraged outcomes and the work that they did that now allows them to have a million X the impact that someone else does. Yeah. All right. So this hits a little too close to home. I think with our hypothetical company, you nailed it. So just we're pretty good with tools. Like I, my partner, I use Superhuman. We're on Asana. We've got like QuickBooks, everything set up going as efficient as it can. People, naturally, we have to be decent at that because we're people-based business. However, I want to hit on some issues that I've had with that is I have this interim CFO that's looking at what I'm doing and she's actually been helping with some of my productivity stuff and she made me do time blocking and time tracking and she was like, oh my Lord, she's you spend so much time on dumb stuff. It's, you need to get an executive assistant or something. And just like there's like a stigma with that. I was like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I, I, I can roll up my sleeves and do it all. But as they're seeing the stuff, some of the stuff you say and I read about, it's like, okay, this is a no-brainer. The other thing that you talked about, product, maybe productizing your stuff, 
I totally agree. And I think that advice of if you repeat anything, record it and it's a hundred percent worth it. We we could be so much better at the byproduct of our work could be the actual product, whether it's a course or just stuff that we can help operationalize our, our process. But the thing that's scared not that's the hardest is capital. As you do well and you accumulate some cash, the best operators, the best CEO CEOs are great capital allocators. So where do you put that money? Is it back into people? Is it building your moat? Because that leverage, like you said, can go to so many different paths. And I think that's something, I don't know if it comes with reps or if it's just being more intentional with the end goal that, that I struggle with is the, the capital leverage because it can go so many different ways. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I, I hesitate to be too prescriptive, not knowing kind of what you're what the hypothetical vision is for the future, right? But I, it is clear that if you keep sort of running the cycle without intentional reinvestment, that the cycle is going to have the same input to output ratio, right? Like the purpose of reinvesting that capital is to continue to increase the output ratio per input. And so if it's not obvious that there's a next SaaS platform, tool to invest in to buy back another hour or a person to hire to take on more clients or marketing channel to bring in more, assuming you have the capacity for it. There's also this whole world of kind of expanding into non-agencies tend to be, I don't know the, the hypothetical model here, but tend to be capped by number of hours that they can sell. And there's products that don't, that your audience may be interested in that don't share that constraint. And so investing the capital into some of those is a common thing you see agencies do, whether that's a SaaS tool or an information product or something like that can be sold many times in parallel and kind of expand the offerings of the company or to add a new person who's you know got an entirely different and complementary talent to what the agencies have or a marketing channel to expand and take your same capabilities and expand it into a new kind of market. But that if that capital doesn't get reinvested somehow, it's natural to expect that ratio to stay the same. So if you're trying to increase that, you know, and no judgment if that's the way you want to do it. But if if you are frustrated by the by the ratio not changing and you're not reinvesting the capital, then that's a natural place to start. And where to deploy that is as a long conversation, probably, and, and a very personal one, depending on which direction our hypothetical protagonist wants to move. I like how this has turned into a therapy session for me. Um, <laughs> I feel bad I should throw you some money for this. But no, you've hit it on the head. Like It's really freeing up time with the executive team to get outside of some of the client work, still be on top of it, but be able to go to more of a tiny Andrew Wilkinson type of model as far as investing profits into acquiring companies or investing. So yeah, that's your spot on. Yeah. Acquiring a whole company is about as, as intimidating as it gets, right? The ability to reinvest into your own operations to increase efficiency and, and decrease your time load is, is probably like the obvious next first investment. Yeah. And in, in one of the things we do early in the course, uh, like as I was is establish this aspirational early rate, what are all of the things that you do? And your CFO may be doing some of this um, for you already, but what are you worth when you are working on your highest value tasks? Is there more opportunity for that? then there's where the opportunity to buy back your time. And one of the things that we look at it, when you study leverage, you really pretty quickly, you transcend the dollar as the ultimate denominator and you start looking at your time as a denominator. And the goal is to continually increase rate at which you can work. If you're doing $100 an hour work today, but half of the work that you do is brings in $250 an hour and 10% of the work you do brings in $500 an hour then how quickly can you get rid of the $100 an hour work 
level and move your denominator up to 250 an hour, then reinvest that into somebody else who can help you move it up to $500 an hour. And it just kind of keep iterating through the cycle of what is the stuff that only I can do? What am I worth when I am operating at my very best? And you know, for Andrew Wilkinson, who's very far along in this process, it doesn't have anything to do with clients anymore. It doesn't really have much to do with his operation. It's really expensive time meeting people, going on podcasts, raising capital, and being a late stage deal evaluator. And I think probably some incentive alignment for the CEOs in his portfolio and some review of financials. That's maybe the final say. That's probably not super far from where Warren Buffett is, right? Like spending a lot of time reading, a little time deciding, and there's no higher judgment act in the world than like Warren Buffett deciding to buy, allocate however many tens of billions of dollars you just put into Apple, right? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing all because they can get to that calendar zero and focus on the high leverage activities. Very cool. So you're an extremely clear thinker. It's really fun to hear that. So I want to go to this kind of thing around half-baked startup ideas, like a startup idea brainstorm. As you like do all this research, shell these opportunities out there. What are some half-baked ideas that you have? You've come to the right half-bakery. I've got a, <laughs> I got a, I got a long list in my phone of just crackpot ideas that may not make any sense whatsoever, but they're a lot of fun to think about. I, I was actually listening to one of your, I think your most recent episode, though, may not be by the time we, we come out. This guy had this amazing process for triaging his ideas through 50 questions before he worked on them. And I was like, oh... I need that. I just come up with these and they just seem all equivalently exciting to me. And they just sit somewhere in the back of my brain and in my phone, like taunting me. And there's now like hundreds of them doing this. So it's very distracting. Yeah, mine live in a GoDaddy account. Just like, oh, remember when you bought that URL four years ago? What are you going to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some truly absurd URLs that I own. I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? But I can't let them go either because you never know. Yeah, it could be the next Facebook. So you got to. Yeah. Okay. So I, so I will... Um, Say that I'm glad that you pre-warned me that this question was coming, so that I could organize some of my half bakery. So I've got I've been doing I've been doing a lot of like reading and and light investing in the crypto world. So I'm not I'm very far from an expert here, but it is really cool to see new capabilities emerging around like blockchain technology and ecosystems and development. And I think I mean that's half of you know, the convergence of a new technology, new capability, and an existing kind of eternal human demand. And that's when those things come together, really cool stuff can happen. So I've got one little list that is like in the crypto world. I don't know if that's anywhere on people's radar in this audience or not. I also think that like real estate and life, like living lifestyle stuff can change pretty drastically over the next little bit. And some interesting ideas around the media. So we can like kind of choose our own adventure here. Yeah. I'd love to hear on the real estate one, what you have. Okay. So what I wanted six years ago is no longer what I want, but I still want it to exist in the world. So what I would have opted into in a second is this like global semi-nomadic like co-living situation where there's basically free furnished apartments all over the world in major and minor cities. And I just have a trunk of possessions that and I can move between any one of them with two weeks notice for a month at a time and live in Hong Kong and then San Francisco and then London and then whatever. And I would have dealt with non-amazing conditions. I really just need like a bed, hopefully a private small bedroom and a big co-living space and just like be out in the city. But to reduce the friction between me and a backpack, like moving all over the world with somewhat of a built-in community would have been a super, super amazing way to kind of spend my 20s. So I think that would be pretty awesome. I think it's 
this is tied in with this idea that I think it's pretty fascinating how unbranded the experience of real estate and living around the world is. I can't think of another major purchase in our lives that is so undetermined by brand, right? Like our cars, our computers, our like food, our, absolutely everything has global or at least national brands associated with it. But nobody says like anything past a local brand name of a, an apartment or something that they live in that means anything to anyone else, right? Wow, that's such a fascinating lens to look at it through. Because first, I love the business model of maybe it could even be some sort of subscription, or maybe it's like based on how long you're staying in a place. But if it's the WeWork, if it's the W Hotel, the Ritz, but of nomad living conditions or quarters or whatever that would be, almost like a, a souped up hostel, but it's for people that are doing this for more extended stay. I think is really interesting. You could even go niche down similar to the dynamite jobs and the tropical MBA community that kind of really jumped on the back of the four hour work week, a digital nomad type of persona. But man, I, especially with travel starting to open back up, I feel like there's going to be a huge spike in people wanting to get out and do that again. I think that's really interesting. I, I think it was fun. Like the, the thought experiment around if you took major, easily identifiable brands like Nike or like Walmart or like Mercedes. What if each of their respective apartment buildings look like? What does an apartment building operated by Walmart look like? It might not be beautiful, but it's probably like as cheap and clean and quality as you can get. I probably should use Costco. I love Costco. So what does a Costco apartment building look like? Or, or what does Nike's look like? Right? What would be this living situation that's entirely oriented around athletics and healthy lifestyle and something like that. Like how differently would that be designed from some normal kind of tiki-taki apartment building? I think that's really interesting. But where we are, where I am now is kind of beginning to think more about a family than how do I spend more time seeing the rest of the world and hanging out with other 20-year-olds. So now I think it's very, the, the kind of lack of, the way our current real estate configuration impedes like community and multi-generational shared space and is is very like auto-centric is is it both a little bit fashionable in the kind of like urbanist twitter world that we're thinking about but also just feels time like the demand for that feels timeless in a way that it wouldn't be that hard to do right like you just take kind of the normal structure of a block but then remove all the fences in between the houses connect them around the outside so that, and you can have different, very different types of houses. So you have some kind of very first floor, easy access stuff for parents to stay in place, but still be right across a courtyard from kids with young family, but still have different dwellings. And then you've got multiple families kind of sharing this common space in the middle, which reduces the cost, but also makes it really easy for kids to play together with other kids, but still be supervised by at least some of the parents. And there's plenty of room in there to have a, a very local like coffee shop or co-working space or shared sort of assets that people can take advantage of as necessary. So maybe even shared cars so that not everybody has to have their own garage and their own thing, like parking spots like <laughs> in front of their in front of their cars. So I think especially as a remote work decouples the working location and the commute from being a consideration for where people live, it's going to be really and to get educated, frankly, like I think it's going to be really interesting to see how some of this stuff changes and how radical some of those changes can get. So I don't know. I it's so it's such our real estate is such a this is water kind of thing where it's like around us all the time and we forget how our behavior and our culture is constrained by these like somewhat arbitrary like zoning decisions which mostly enforce the old zoning decisions and 
if we work from our ideal lifestyle back towards how does our environment serve that instead of what lifestyles are enabled by the environments that already exist, we end up in a very different spot. And I realize it's very difficult to disrupt just because of all the red tape and kind of tailwinds of inertia that already exists. But so it is maybe less of a good startup idea than a like observation about what could be. But maybe that's where they start. The thing that I like with every startup idea, going back to our idea of how do you validate these ideas? What criteria do you have? Because there's this TED talk around the most important thing with a startup is actually timing. And what you're hitting on is there's this huge shift with people not working in the skyscrapers, they're working at home. So the idea of home is totally changing. The idea of community is totally changing. So I do think it is the right time, but you're right. There's some red tape. There's some real capital required in all of this, but I think someone will do this. Maybe it should be you. But it's going to happen in, in 20 years. We're like, damn, we should have built that development and be billionaires. But that, that's a really good one. That's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope somebody, I think it probably takes a pretty specific set of skills and experiences to feel confident tackling that thing. And if that feels like it describes you, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. But yeah, that's so far, my software career has not prepared me well for trying to build a block and move multi-generational families into it and deal with zoning boards. But maybe I'll find my my soulmate and we'll tackle it. Find him on the internet. Naval, you connected with Naval on the internet, so there's still hope. Okay, that was a really good one. I'd love to hear. Now, did you talk about one around new media? Is that what you said? It's, I don't know if it's new media. One of the like trends that I think is interesting is just like massively increasing personalization in media. So rather than all gathering on or like watching Letterman together, everyone's just watching their own shows on their own devices. And that's increasing. That is true of like show selection, but increasingly true of the younger generations who are like choosing to watch stuff on YouTube. And it's like algorithmically sent at a very unique kind of niche interest that they're served. And, but there will always be this core kind of shared culture of we're all watching sports we're all watching i don't know if we're all watching the oscars anymore but the olympics and like big shared events but how do we personalize the experience around that and keep everyone interested in it so my the pitch that i have around this is to sort of open source the video of these events of all sporting events of all like media common shared culture things, but in a, create a platform that enables anyone to provide their own voiceover. And so, you know, what qualifies like these commentators specifically, like some people would really want to watch a basketball game with like deep, like ta- basketball tactical experts and like historians and players get super, super nerdy. But I also would kind of want to watch like comedians commentating a basketball game and just being like as hilarious as possible and turn this thing that I kind of want to see into something that is I kind of want to see, but it's also pure comedy. Or imagine like a football game commentated by people who were totally driven by the results in a fantasy football arena instead of like guys who are trying to be one professional and follow network TV rules and two even to both teams and three not ruin their personal relationship with these players compared to what an actual hilarious YouTube guy would or a true like world class you know football expert or a former lineman talking about what it's like to be in that actual thing like and guests could come in so and I think the same is equally true of the Oscars and the Olympics and like all of these kind of shared experiences that are kind of cultural moments, but we all would enjoy with our own different lenses on top of them. I think there's something really interesting in there that like Twitch is kind of flirting with with a co-streaming. Like all of the tools are there. This just isn't, and I don't know if it is like a legal legal reuse issue or if it's going to be kind of approached in a descriptivist way where this just happens and gets so popular so quickly that all of a sudden it's impossible for these TV stations to stop, but like it increases their 
the audience of their event. So why would they? So I think that's a really something I would like to consume and kind of can't imagine not happening, but who knows how it'll evolve and, and what platform will kind of emerge from it. Oh my gosh, I want this to exist so bad because based on watching a basketball game and what network it is on, I know who the commentators will be and it'll almost make or break the experience. And sometimes I love it when they nerd out and show you stuff where I think I'm pretty sophisticated, but they show me something I didn't know. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And other times I just like it when it's old players telling funny stories and it's in the, the game is almost the backdrop. But that, that, that's a good idea. That will happen. It's a matter of when and all the TV rights and how you work that out. But that's a really good one. So this one could be easy to validate with the right, like you could validate it through or bootstrap validation, at least through like Clubhouse and Twitter spaces. It's not hard to pair audio and video. It is, there is definitely a very evolved version of it where people can choose feeds and pause and go back and are like essentially creating their own broadcast. But right now, if you just wanted to like Mystery Science 3000, Mystery Science Theater 3000 over a basketball game, like anybody could do that right now through these kind of open audio platforms. And maybe that's where it'll emerge is somebody just using their own following to create this different viewing experience and and it grows from there. No, I love that one. Okay, I know we've gone way over, but I'm just kind of, I am interested in the crypto stuff. I don't know if too many people listen, but I don't know if there's a the quick version of something that's rattling around in your head around it. I mean, one that feels obvious that I can't believe doesn't exist yet is just a truly enormous global lottery that is like pretty close to lossless. Every government ever everywhere will hate it, but I don't know how they'll be able to stop it. And you could just get, I mean, jackpots that basically make people into some of the richest people on the planet, which would just be kind of a cool, crazy world to live in. It may be a very terrible idea, but it is that is in the sci-fi bucket. I also feel like people would do it. How does that not exist? I would be buying tickets every single week wanting to become a billionaire overnight. Yeah, that yeah, that would get pretty wild pretty quickly, I think. The like slightly more reasonable one is I've been really challenging myself to I think Ethereum is is super super compelling and smart contracts are going to change so much and I'm like it's a fun brain puzzle for me to try to think through different things that are actually going to get transformed and the one I've been messing with recently is how we might have come up with a much more kind of fair but automated rental system so a platform for managing rental payments through through smart contracts where essentially anybody can deposit the rentee renter can deposit collateral into this shared account and the renter still owns the asset that's in this escrow and still earns the yield on it back to their original wallet but is paid out basically by the day as rent is consumed and transitions into the owner's wallet and starts giving them the yield from those assets immediately. And the amount that the renter puts into escrow can determine, can basically earn them a premium or a discount depending on how much they have in there as a percentage of the lease terms. So if they're depositing escrow like weekly, they may be paying a five or 10% premium because the risk that represents to the landlord. Whereas if they deposit a whole year up front. They don't mind because they're still earning yield on that, but they are they get like a 5% discount on their rent because they are more than 12 months out in escrow and they can't remove that without the landlord knowing or, or at least like feeling that the price penalty of that. So it is a way of kind of de-risking and making this a little more fair without changing the assets and the ownership. And I imagine that we will eventually reach some configuration here where 
what is a fair lease is just like generally agreed upon. And we all kind of adopt the same set of rules around rather than individually renegotiating every lease we ever re-enter based on rental deposits and this and that. So I'm excited for kind of what that can represent when we remove some of the friction around ACH transfers and payments and paperwork and things like that and how we might adopt a, a universal sort of fairness thing that's automatically enforced and mutually beneficial between landlord and, and renter. That's really cool. It could totally change how you do contracts and renewals and everything. That's a pretty cool one. Well, Eric, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to end with one final question that I always like to ask people. What is the nicest thing anyone has ever done for you in your career? In my career specifically, I mean, careers are so enabled by the personal life. And I'm deeply grateful to my family for my, my parents for many years for supporting giving me kind of all the opportunities that they were able to and my fiance now for enabling the shenanigans that I call a career. I, I mean, I was hired pretty, <laughs> like pretty sight unseen by Bo Fishback when he started Zarly. And that was a, that was a big leap of faith. And I'm, I'm very grateful because that was, you know, kind of in one move from going from Michigan State. I didn't, wasn't even about to graduate. I was just, I had another year of school left and just left and moved to San Francisco and got immersed in the tech scene. And that was really, that was a leap of faith that totally changed my life. And I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that kind of willingness to gamble on a kid. That's cool. Yeah. What one open door that can lead to the next It just that one person that can give you a break can be everything. So that's really cool. Eric, this was really fun. I feel like I could have talked to you for five hours to hear your half baked ideas. from your half. <laughs> we are nowhere near sold out. I got so much left. <laughs> <laughs> it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. It could have been the whole episode of just insane startup ideas. I know I might force you to come back and hear those. Where should people go if they want to learn more about you, about leverage, read your book? Where do you, where should you point them? Yeah. So my personal site is ejorgensen.com. That's got stuff on the course. That's got my newsletter. Uh, that's got links to the book. Everything for the book is on .com and it's available for free there. So you can download the digital versions. It's got links to Amazon if you want to buy the physical or the, the um, audible. The audio is also for free on my podcast channel so you can find your way there and if you just want to message me or whatever i'm i'm on twitter constantly and and very easy to find but if, you, if you're not a if you're not a twitter person just like hop on my email list and i'll we can get in touch there guys his email list is really good please sign up hopefully he'll be selling mountain of leverage t-shirts and swag very soon i will be the first one to make a purchase i think that'd be pretty sick yeah Giant, I'm going to do giant mountain of leverage hats. That's we're all going to be yes. wearing like sombrero sized <laughs> mountains on our heads. That's how you'll know that we're leveraged people. It'll be great street marketing. So I think it's very smart. Um, maybe for ACL or something. Um, well, Eric, this was super fun, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jim. Talk to you later. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating 
generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of a hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Thank you.